0: Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters.
1: All of our design is done in-house. All of our photography is done in-house. Production, manufacturing, logistics, sales, marketing, all of that is under one roof.
0: Hey, my name is Felix, I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week you learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode you'll learn what does it mean to be a full stack company, how to outsource parts of your business when you're a control freak, and how to create an effective product video. Today I'm joined by Eric and Josh from WMP Design. WMP Design brings new ideas to life in the food and drink-verse, makers of the Mason Shaker, Carry On Cocktail Kit, and more. It was started in 2012 and based out of Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, Eric and Josh.
1: Hey, how are you? Hey, thanks for having
0: us. Yeah, excited to have you on. So let's start with the products. You guys have lots of cool living products on your site. Uh, maybe tell us about what are some of the most popular ones that, that, that you guys sell.
2: Yeah, so we got our start um, with a mason jar cocktail shaker, which was sort of a novelty and functional uh, cocktail shaker using a ball mason jar. And since then, we've kind of defined the company by producing products that are interesting uh, to us in the food and beverage world. So that includes both hard goods, uh, consumable goods, and content, so books. Um, We've kind of created a diverse line of products, everything from very giftable, novel products to very functional tools uh, that can be used in the kitchen, both at home, um, at service. So it, it sort of spans a broad range of things, but at WMP Design, we kind of keep the lane that we run in food and beverage.
0: Very cool. How did you guys choose this industry? How did you um, settle on the, the food and drink uh, world?
1: So, actually, back in college, I took time off from um, university and went to culinary school. So, I spent time um, in Italy, actually, doing culinary school, learning sort of how to be a chef, and then after graduation, we both knew we wanted to get back in business together. Um, you know, originally, we were considering starting a restaurant, but Really what we wanted to do was create new things in food and beverage. So we started W&P to basically create a platform for us to um, bring to life new ideas in food and beverage.
0: Mm. And have you guys worked together in the past to start other businesses?
2: Uh, our first venture back in college when, when Josh got back from culinary school uh, was a catering company uh, that we started. It was Josh, myself, um, a friend who's now a chef and actually... Uh, our, our marketing director was our pastry chef, so so we have all worked together in some capacity uh, in the past.
0: Nice. And are you guys designers by trade? Like how did you? Where where does this background come from to create new products?
2: Yeah, I think uh, you know professionally. Josh uh, had a lot of experience on the culinary and sort of creative side. Um, my background is in product development, so not so much on the design side, but on the the product development bringing a product from sort of idea to reality, uh, working with various factories and manufacturers across the country and world. Um, so when, when Josh and I first launched WMP, our first collection uh, was done with actually uh, a retailer, West Elm, and we ideated, created and physically built that line of goods ourselves. Um, it's very much a collaborative effort between uh, Josh, myself, and the entire team, which has grown uh, quite a bit since it was just he and I, you know, coming up with this stuff in an apartment.
0: Got it. So I think you said, mentioned earlier that the Mason Shaker was the first product that you guys came out with. How did you settle on this? How did you decide that this was a product that you would bring to market first?
2: Yeah, so we we, uh, we came from Virginia to New York uh, originally. We, we graduated school from the University of Virginia in, in um 2008, we were in New York, uh, sort of making our way professionally, trying to figure out how we could start a business in the food and beverage world together because we knew the field really interested us. Um, we wanted to create a collection of, of products in the food and beverage space that kind of um, had kind of a Virginia aesthetic and a New York sensibility and function. That was kind of the original thought. And the Mason Jar Cocktail Shaker was. Uh, the original expression of that um, around which we ideated and created our first line of products.
0: And did you test this product out at all? It's, it's. Uh, I've never seen a product like this, so I can't say that I would know to look for it. How did you know that this was a product that would do, do well enough to to launch a business uh, on the back of?
2: Sure. So it's a pretty easy one. I mean, at the time, the mason jar was a pretty uh iconic and popular mm-hmm. piece of glassware. It's super functional. Uh, and we were already using it um to shake and infuse bourbon drinks and other drinks in the jar. So we thought creating a cocktail shaker around, you know, a, a super durable piece of glass that had metric and imperial measurements on it would be pretty cool. And it was a, an on-trend uh piece of glassware again. So we uh we actually launched a Kickstarter campaign. Um that did really, really well, and as a result of that campaign, that kind of uh, validated the the thought that the product and a line of goods, sort of in that theme, would do well at market.
0: Got it. So when you when you launched this this product, did you mention that this was the product that you partnered up with a company for, or was it a different one?
1: No,
2: we, we so the mason jar cocktail shaker was was uh, pre-funded and launched on Kickstarter initially followed by a launch of a, a full line of goods uh, that we partnered with West Elm on. The partnership was just selling the product to them. They, they didn't really have much to do with the ideation, creation, uh, or manufacturing of the line, but uh, they, they were our first customer.
0: Got it. And were they your customer because of the success of the Kickstarter campaign? How were you able to, to have that, that connection with um, you know a, a large retailer for a new business?
2: Sure. I think the Kickstarter campaign helped a lot. Um, We reached out to West Elm independently. Um, They're located in Brooklyn where we were. And so we were able to connect with them and preview the, the products with them. But I think the Kickstarter was a really big help in showing them that the product or the line around the product would be really, really popular. So it certainly helped
0: got it now when you work with a retailer like West Elm what are they looking for like if someone out there is thinking about getting into a, a retailer like West Elm how, what what should what kind of I guess ducks should they get in in order to to be successful in a uh, in I guess pitching their product
2: sure I think they're looking for uh, products that are on trend that are going to be interesting to their customer that are relevant to their customer base so not all products are Great for all retailers, and mm-hmm. then I think on top of that, they're really looking for the uh, the person that can then responsibly deliver those products to them in a compliant, well, in our in our case, food safe uh, and scalable way. You know, the last thing a retailer wants to do is to launch a product and then the supplier to either run out of the product or to not be able to uh, deliver it in a reliable way. So it's it can be a tricky thing, especially if you're just starting out. Um, So it's, you know, it's one of those things that you just have to work out over time.
0: Yeah, I, that makes sense, right? You can't just have a, a really cool product that they think that the, that will sell. You need to make sure that what they care about them, that you have your supply chain order, that you have your manufacturing distribution, unlocked. So, being a new company, and I'm assuming you didn't have much track record here at that time, how were you able to convince them to to believe in you to to take that you know gamble and and uh, and such as sell your products on their shelves?
2: Yeah, I think it was a a slow ramp at first. I mean, they do test sampling, auditing of your manufacturing, and then a a small test order. And if you check those boxes one at a time, they begin to ramp their level of Mm -hmm. purchasing and um, and sort of long-term business with you. So that was kind of how we did it.
0: Got it. It doesn't just start with a huge order. it probably start with something smaller and then ramp up.
2: I mean... Maybe for others, just not for us. I
0: <laughs> got it. Now, when you say that there was auditing involved, like what was involved? Like, where were, where were they? Uh, what did they care to look into? Like, what, what what was important for them?
2: Sure. I mean, with any with any major retailer, it's food compliance, material compliances, testings, um, you know, labeling and packaging requirements. It depends on the customer, but for for some of the larger ones, there's a whole bevy of things that you kind of have to go through uh, in order to deliver something to market because the last thing a company like that wants to do is to purchase something from a small designer or retailer um, that might not be, you know, in our case, food safe, packaged correctly, um, you know, go through the rigors of shipping and, and that, that, things of that nature that, um, that it might take. You know, if, you, if you're creating a product in a warehouse in Brooklyn or Long Island or something as we were, it might be shipped three or four times before it arrives to the customer.
0: Mm. And were there were there things that they, that uh, they asked for for you to change or to fix as they were going through this uh, this process of reviewing your business?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, packaging tweaks, uh, you know, labeling tweaks, things of that nature. It wasn't it wasn't too crazy, but there's always it's a two way street conversation.
0: Yeah, I've heard this before where retailers are very you know, picky, of course, about the packaging and labeling because it is going to be presented and represented on their shelves. What were some key things that if someone is to launch or start working with a retailer that they, you know, based on your experience, that they should keep in mind going into this possible review or audit process that they should make sure they have ready with their packaging and labeling?
2: I mean, I think that, well, every retailer's actually, not unfortunately, but Every retailer is different, so my recommendation would be to pay attention to the manual or the compliance documents that they send your way because they have some pretty, I would, they have some pretty strict guidelines that you can if you sort of step out of bounds of, um, there can be like fines, chargebacks, shipbacks, things of that nature.
1: And I think one thing that you can do when you're thinking about packaging and requirements like that, away from reading the compliances and asking your buyers for direction on that is looking at comparable products that the companies or retailers carry. Because if, if it, there's a product in the store, you know it's gone through that level of rigor and, and testing and um, compliance. So you can kind of take notes from what others have done on your own packaging when it comes to labeling and and. Things of that nature.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Now, how much creative freedom do you have when it comes to your packaging? Are there is it pretty restrictive or do you have a lot of freedom to to create the packaging you want as long as you check a certain number of boxes?
1: Um, generally for our, our in-house brands and collections that we're producing, we have, you know, total freedom when it comes to packaging. You know, these are products that we're creating for our own sale and our own brand. Um, there is a, you know, we do work with some retailers on sort of a private label or customized basis, where we'll do some minor packaging tweaks or product tweaks to existing products um, to create something really special for a retailer. And in those cases, the retailer does have, you know, some some really great input into the product and the packaging and, and what they'd like to see.
0: Right. I mean, I'm sure they want to set you up for success anyway and, and help you design a packaging or labeling that, 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 uh, will sell to their customers. Now, what was the timeline for this? You know, getting, getting, getting into a, a large retailer like this is a key win for a business. How much effort, how many meetings or how long did it take before you were between the time that you had your first conversation to be able to walk into a West Elm store and see your, your product?
2: So we were pitching pretty aggressively. I think we started in early spring and we were to market by late fall. Um, that was incredibly aggressive on our side. A lot of the larger retailers plan 12, 18, or 24 months out. We had a special exception in the way that our product was doing quite well and kind of on trend. So I think everybody's experience uh, in our world is a little bit different, but you you know, you, you kind of want to get ready for the long haul. So that's where you kind of have to balance your business by, you know, primarily working via, you know, if you're working business to business with with smaller retailers, uh, as well as uh, actual retail uh, customers. If you're going to have sort of a stable business that's that's got all the various platforms of people you're selling to.
0: Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? What do you mean by aggressive? Like, were you doing a lot of follow-ups, a lot of meetings? Like, how were you able to move things along at a faster pace?
2: Mm -hmm. A lot of follow-ups and a lot of meetings. Fortunately, we were local, so we were able to meet with them relatively quickly. Um, And we were able to deliver samples and, you know, poor photograph samples and things like that as quickly as they were asking. And the timelines were very, very rapid. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were just doing everything in-house, primarily by hand at the time, uh, which kind of made it a little bit quicker than it might be. Also, the line at that time was quite simple, and it it was a relatively easy grouping of products to, to do that
0: with. Got it. Now, one thing I saw on your, I think, about page on your website that I, that I found interesting was that you, des- you describe your company as a full-stack product design company. Can you say more about this? and What does this mean to, to you?
1: Sure, yeah. So the way we think about our company is we handle uh, all steps of a, of a product's life cycle. So from the ideation through design, um, production, manufacturing, delivery, sales, marketing, all the way to the consumer's hands, we handle all of that in-house. So all of our design is done in-house. All of our photography is done in-house. Production, manufacturing, logistics, sales, marketing, all of that is under one roof. And what that allows us to do is have total control over seeing products through from sort of that kernel of an idea to a delivered good. And to us, that's super important because it it really creates, you know, the truest expression of what that original idea was and delivers sort of the best product possible to an end user.
0: Mm, similar to, I guess, like an Apple, the way that they design everything from beginning to, to end. Is that is a way that you like to model your business?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was sort of a, inspired by that, but honestly, you know, driven most by by maybe us being control freaks at our core (laughs) (laughs) of just wanting to make sure that each step of the way we were involved in the, in the process and driving it, um, for what, you know, how a product comes to life. And I think that, um, you know, in, in my opinion, what, what drives a lot of the success of our products is, um, when we release it, we only release things that we're incredibly passionate about and happy with. Um, and we, we get to that point by, um, taking part in each each step of the way and bringing that product to life.
2: I, I would say rather than look at it from like an apple perspective, almost look at it from a chef's perspective who's ideating a dish, sourcing the ingredients from like a local purveyor farmer, uh, you know, preparing those ingredients, preparing that dish, and then serving the dish at, you know, a restaurant where he might have had all of the sort of input on what that restaurant or service sort of environment would feel like. Um, And and that's hopefully what we're able to do with our product.
0: Got it. Now, on the other kind of extreme end of of this, uh, uh, on the extreme end of the other side, is that there are entrepreneurs that are outsourcing everything, right? They want to... uh, hire out for all their different uh, tasks, different processes to other companies, to other vendors. Um, and obviously when you are, like you guys say, control freaks, it can make a business difficult in other ways that, that maybe someone that's outsourcing everything doesn't experience. What have you run into? What kind of challenges do you do you uh, run into because you are controlling this entire stack?
2: Certainly. And we, we, we have learned where, where to outsource certain things whether it comes to fulfillment, you know, initially when we launched, we were kidding, manufacturing and fulfilling everything from our own sort of like full stack warehouse, doing things like understanding that that's not the best way to do things and outsource. We've done those things in our business. When it comes to the actual product design, development and delivery, though, um, it's really the the delivery that we've kind of outsourced. Everything else we generally do in-house unless it doesn't seem to make sense. We we do outsource some functions of our business, but whether it's marketing, um, social media, web development, sales, we do like to keep all of that in house uh, in Brooklyn. You know, we have a great design team that spans all aspects of design um, and project management, product development. It's a very collaborative and fun environment. And you know, when we run up against something where we think it's you know, less than efficient use of our time to have it in that sort of full stack process. So we'll, we'll try and figure out where to outsource. And, and so, you know, we've, we've done that over time.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure that you aren't the only control freaks that are, that are uh, listening to, to this podcast. So what tips do you have for others out there that need to learn how to let go of their business a little bit more and begin to outsource pieces that they've held on to so tightly?
2: I think it would be always understanding where you're at in, in the stage of business that you're at. So, um, when it comes to, say, fulfillment, um, trying to recognize where you're at and asking others who might be in certain uh, similar situations or maybe one or two steps ahead of you. Uh, so, we're constantly humbled by all the knowledge and information and resources that exist with other entrepreneurs in our space. And we're constantly talking to them to understand where they were at in their business when they either outsourced something or made the decision to bring something in-house. Um, so it's, it's a constant dialogue. And we found not only in New York, but in, in that, this sort of uh, space of people that are making things and delivering them and creating real tangible goods, it's, it's one of those things that we've constantly reached out to others and talked to them and, and weighed a number of people's opinions and decisions and then talked about it ourselves and implemented this sort of next steps for our company.
0: Got it. Now, when you do sit down to think about the next product, what does that process like? How do you guys decide which product to work on next?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're we're constantly um, looking at sort of what's happening in the food and beverage landscape um, to sort of identify new ideas that that we can sort of bring to the table. Um, you know, at this point, we've got. Uh, Thirty people in Brooklyn that are all uh, very, very much into the food and beverage world, and and pretty active in that community. So we're constantly sort of in dialogue internally as a team about you know what's the latest thing in food and beverage, and and sharing those things um, across the company. And when we do sort of identify sort of a a new um, thing happening in food and beverage, we all. We all come together as a team, talk about it, and really brainstorm sort of how we could participate in that um, in that trend or in that in sort of like that movement in food and beverage.
2: And whether it's a you know a project manager, a designer, an intern, people on the marketing team, sales team, everybody on our on our broader team kind of contributes to those ideas. And there have been you know products and projects that come from Josh and I. There have been products and projects that come from interns. Uh, in terms of the company, it, it really spans the entire group, um, which is really really fun.
0: Now, these uh, thirty people are they actual employees of the business, or are they almost like an informal, you know, board of advisors that you guys uh, use as a sounding board? Like, how how do they what's their relationship with you?
2: Sure, we have we have thirty full time employees in in Greenpoint in in Brooklyn, and then we have a lot of partners when it comes to third party outsourced uh, fulfillment. Uh, some of our co-packing and all that but the, the team in New York is is at 30 yeah
0: very cool now do you have a list of criteria or factors that you try to filter use as a filter for all of the new product ideas that you know you at least like to see um, they hit a few a few of these before you invest the time and a resource into a new product
2: I think that from a very broad broad initial standpoint we try and follow something that Macro interesting and or on trend, but it also has to be very interesting and on trend to ourselves. We're not just going to chase something because we we think it'll do well. We have to genuinely be interested in the subject matter, and then from there we kind of have a system of checks uh, internally and externally to make sure that the direction that we're going with a product develop a product that we're developing uh is something that that hopefully will be successful. And then we kind of keep an attitude that no matter how much time or or energy we put into a project, if we realize that it might be a, a sunk cost, we just sort of move on to, to the next one. So for as many okay to great ideas we've had, there there have been some that we've had to uh, sort of be humble about and, and kill, even if even if we get a, a little bit down the design and, and creation process. If it goes through the, the system that we've gotten, it seems to hit a wall, a roadblock. Oftentimes we kind of let that, let the idea either go to rest or, um, Go to die.
0: Now, <laughs> is it like a, a market demand wall that hits where you realize that it might not sell as well as you would think? Or like, what are some reasons why you might essentially kill an idea that you've invested, that you've sunk, you sunk, know, like you mentioned, sunk costs, you, that you've, you've, you've sunk these resources into?
2: Yeah, I think at the end of the day, where, where the projects really uh, are made or broken is is in our our final vetting process with buyers, customers, preschoolers Pre screening the idea, and once it gets to a certain point uh, with individuals and groups that we really care about that we think have a larger sense of the, the pulse of the market, uh, there's a whole a bevy of those people, whether it's influencers, large box retailers, uh, independent store owners, uh, individual customers. We're, we try and be really um, proactive about pre screening. Certain ideas and select ideas by a large group, and if it doesn't seem like it's resonating, we kind of go back to the drawing board.
0: Got it. What's this pre-screening process like? Do you have like a prototype that you're giving to them? Like what's involved in testing the market before you 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 know blow this up and start sending it to manufacturers?
2: Well, if you take a look at our website wpdesign dot you'll see a broad range of products and projects. So books. Uh, consumable goods and hard goods are all very, very different. So that pre-screening process can be can actually run the gamut of everything you just mentioned. So everything from a hard prototype and sample that we may have 3D printed in office, all the way up to just a simple idea that we've put down pen to paper and can sort of pass by a buyer or an individual. So it, it really does depend on the project because some are easier to sample than others. Um, but it can kind of run everything from a very Summary idea or thought to almost a near finished good.
0: Mm. Now, what kind of feedback are you usually looking for when you are putting a, a potential product in front of uh, your one of the, these these members?
2: Yeah, I think it's pretty easy when you're talking about uh, a good that someone would purchase or consume. So, if it's an adverse reaction, um, it's pretty obvious. So, it's, it's pretty easy. You know, it kind of thumbs up or, or down. Would you want this? Would you not? Do you think this would you know? Resonate with your customer Would it not You know
0: Got And have you ever Gone ahead with a product anyway Even though The feedback might have been Lukewarm But maybe you believed in it More than Than the people That you were talking to
2: Sure I'd I'd say For a lot of our projects um, That may have been the case In certain fields Because we are Screening these things By so many people Or so many different Groups of people um, You know That a a Super Super influential a uh, barista or bartender might not have the same opinion that an at-home buyer at a retail store might have so you might get really lukewarm um you might get really lukewarm reception from from one type of person in a in the very same field than than another and you might just go ahead because you you have a hunch
0: Got it. Now, once you have decided to, to uh, invest the time into creating a product, how is it all planned out? Like, talk to us about your the, the next step, essentially, after giving the green light on a new product.
2: Uh, again, I mean, I don't want to get too broad of an answer, but because there's such a range, I mean, it could be anything from... Designing to pricing out to sampling, you know, when it comes to the food and beverage stuff that's consumed, we have to make sure that it can be food safe. There's consultations with food scientists. Um, really it really runs the, the gamut when it comes to the creative projects and printed materials, the books, um, you know, it has, it has to do with asking if there's a viable author or, you know, a way to create the content. Um, but, you know, every one of the projects that we bring to life, you know, can range from a sort of, um, I don't know, a, 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 a bursting cycle of six months to a year or two. It really depends on the complexity of the project or, you know, how, how we're bringing it to market. But there have been ideas that we've been kicking around for, um, you know, up to a year or two or as little as, you know, three to six months that kind of see the light of day.
0: Mm-hmm. And because you have so much experience uh, as a company in all these different types of products, what, has been, what would you say has been the most challenging type of product to, to create and bring to market?
1: I think probably the carry-on cocktail kit. So uh, we launched this product about a year and a half, two years ago, and it's been probably our, our best seller um, to date. And it's actually a, a kit that allows you to make two cocktails on a plane. And, you know, we were kind of tired of the the normal drink offerings on a plane, which were really not that great. Um, and we took it on as sort of a design challenge to make a uh, a kit that could make two cocktails on a plane. Um, you know, when we started out, we were very excited about it, but quickly realized that we what we were trying to do was very difficult because we were trying to design a very small package that had a lot of mixed materials in it. Um you know, we had small metal tools, we had some linen napkins, um, some consumable products that had to be um, created and, and formulated and tested. So the mixed materials of that product made it pretty challenging from a design and production standpoint. Um, but at the same time, the those challenges and the, the difficulty there, um, you know, resulted in a really rewarding product because we ended up with something that's incredibly unique um, that didn't exist in the market because, frankly, it's really hard to make. And, and uh, we now have something that is, is really fun and entertaining for um, people that love cocktails and, and love to travel.
0: Yeah, awesome. So because you guys are creating some unique products, do you need to or do you guys choose to patent or go down any of these kind of uh, find ways to protect the, the products and the ideas that you come up with?
2: Sure, yeah. I mean, we do. Um, and we do for a number of our products. Um, you know, we we basically weigh each product and whether or not it's patentable, if, if there is something out there that we can patent or copyright. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think all of it generally worth it we hold a couple of patents currently we've got a bunch of patents pending um but yeah that's uh, that's something that we've always kind of done as a practice um in general as a company we you know we have been copied or knocked off and uh, imitated in the past and in general as a as a company we try and just stay positive innovative forward thinking um that's just the way you know we try not to get hung up on any of that Stuff. i think with the mason jar cocktail shaker um you know it's a product that we've got patented but at the same time there have been multiple copies and while we've had to deal with those we've also just taken a very positive track of placement and and just moving forward and thinking very positively about our company and our place in the in the food and beverage scene so um it's kind of a complicated question but we kind of go about it uh
0: a, a number of different ways. Mm, yeah, i imagine that you rather use your energy on creating new products rather than chasing down a, a, any copycats. Uh, now, when you are creating this product, at what point, or creating a product, at what point does pricing come into it? And how do you, how, what's that process? Like, how do you decide how to price your product? Because again, you have so many different types of products that you sell on in your store. I do wonder, like, how do you guys sit down and say, okay, let's put a price of, you know, X dollars on, on a product?
1: I think it starts with, um, it always starts with sort of a gut instinct and then rounds of feedback from our target consumers, our retailers, and the different stakeholders within the company. So generally, we have a pretty good sense just from our knowledge of the industry and sort of our our knowledge of the retail landscape of where a product should be priced. Um, But we always second guess that. So we always test that against feedback from sort of the the target customer whether that's a consumer or a buyer at a large retailer
2: and it's always a balance between you know the target cost or what you think it should be or what a consumer will buy something at and then you know not compromising on the quality of that product and sometimes we've had kill projects because we don't think that we can get a certain idea or product to market at a price that one is a business, and two makes sense for the customer. So it's always a balance and a constant conversation. The last thing we want to do is design and create this fantastic project or product that just is totally dissonant from what a customer would pay for it. No yeah. one wins.
0: <laughs> Yeah. Now, when you're ready to bring that product to market, what's the, the launch process? like? How do you introduce this new product to, to the marketplace?
2: Sure. I mean, we generally launch it both. Uh, From a B2C standpoint, so from our business to Mm -hmm. customers, retail customers on our website, on our Shopify site. And then we also launch it in a similar timeline uh, from a B2B perspective. So we're launching it to um, the great retailers, shops uh, across the country and world that support us and buy our, our products at wholesale and retail them in their individual stores.
0: Is it is it a challenge to line all of this up to make sure that it's all on the shop? I'm sure the answer is yes. So, but so maybe I move on to how do you manage all of this to, to line all of the, the the shops up to to release your product at the same time you do that you have it available on your site. How do you manage all of this?
2: Sure. Yeah. You you, you sort of answer the question yourself. Yes, it is a little bit complicated, but we have a fantastic marketing, sales, and project management team that kind of wants to design. Is turned over once the production uh, processes are in place. It's on the you know the project management team, the marketing team, and the sales team is very careful balance in creating all of the materials, putting everything together. Uh, but we've got a fantastic team in Greenpoint that are constantly working on that, and it is always a struggle, and we're still refining how to do that. And we're, we're kind of batching things into seasons now, as opposed to in a rolling fashion. At least it's ideal, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a constant balance, and it's a total group effort.
0: Mm-hmm. And now for the the direct to consumer, the B two C business, where where do you focus your your marketing uh, resources and efforts?
1: Yeah, I mean we have a a great marketing team um, that works across a number of different uh, channels and and promotional areas. I think. A major um, channel for us is Instagram. And I think a lot of consumer brands of sort of our, our type have found success there. Um, I think we have a very visual uh, product offering. And combined with the products that we make, we also produce a lot of content. So Instagram has been a, a phenomenal platform for us. Um, email marketing is, is also kind of like a tied first place, I'd say. So those two um and we also engage with our our customer base and and followers as well so we um do a lot of influencer outreach and and try to get you know samples of products in people's hands that we know would appreciate it um in a very organic way um wow. you know, we found a lot of success in in getting the right product in the right people's hands um and letting them letting them decide if they want to share it but um making sure that we're getting a good product to the right people
0: Got it. So with Instagram, are you using like paid ads or is it the influencer marketing approach? Uh,
1: we don't use paid ads. Um, we only do uh, sort of an organic program where we're producing great content and hopefully our products speak for themselves when we get them in the right people's hands and, and they share them.
0: Got it. Yeah. I'm sure everyone can check out the, the Instagram to see your, your approach Uh, for, for, for listeners. What kind of content are you focused on, on producing for your, for your page?
1: Yeah, definitely. So you can check us out at, at WNP design on Instagram. Um, we do, uh, share a lot in a couple different categories. So we share, uh, recipes across food and beverage. Um, it, yeah that's, obviously a, a really sweet spot for us given the sort of scope of what we're doing with the company. Um, so the full meals that come out of some of our cookbooks that we've published or, um, you know, just a simple cocktail recipe that's great for that season, all of those live on our Instagram. So you can, you can check them out there. And then we also share kind of, you know, more information about our products and, and how you can use them at home. So, whether that's a carry-on cocktail kit that is, um, you know, being used on a plane in in kind of a novel way or um, sort of our peak ice trays that are, you know, changing the way you can make ice at home. Um, We want to share – sort of that functionality and the, the backstories behind the products with our followers on Instagram.
0: Yeah, now I, now I really see what you mean when I'm looking at your Instagram page about the organic approach because all the photos, they don't scream product photos to me. They show lifestyle kind of uses of your product in the wild and not showing off your product in a way that comes off as salesy. Is that, is that an I guess, an intentional approach to, to demonstrate, to, to educate the 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 consumer about how they can use your product
1: yeah absolutely i think we take more of a sort of show rather than tell approach and really showing how you can use our products and 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 how they can fit into your life um versus just telling you about them um and i think we try to do that across sort of all of our our social efforts
0: got it and that the photography is beautiful for this too is that all done in-house or how do you guys uh, get the photos for for Instagram
2: I would say pretty much it's we, we do almost all of it in-house sometimes we'll have partnered posts that influencers that will like sort of repost or share but the vast majority of what you'll see especially on our sort of constant living feed um, is is all in-house photography
0: Got it. Now, are people coming to the Instagram page or seeing your posts, and then they're clicking over to to the site? Are you able to? Is that where that traffic is coming from Instagram, or are they typically coming from the influencers that that you're working with?
1: I think it's the combination of both, but but generally, we try to get people to our Instagram so that they can see, you know, the the broader breadth of what we're doing in food and beverage um, versus going directly from um, sort of a one-off product post. So we try to engage people so that they can see the full scope um, and then bring them over to the, the website where they can hopefully shop and and, uh, and purchase some of our
0: products. Mm-hmm. Now, another thing that I see that you guys do well in terms of content are the, the product videos that I see on, on the website itself. How are How are these produced?
1: For the product pages?
0: Yeah, for the product pages, even on your homepage, there's like a video playing immediately for, I, I believe, the, the ice tray.
1: So we do all of that content production in house. Um, that That's very important to us to kind of control that and, and make sure that we're producing the best content possible. Um, so we try to have, for, for most of our product lines, at least one product video that explains sort of what the product is and how to use it. Um, and then all of the, the product photography, both sort of the product itself and then also the lifestyle photos are done in-house.
0: Got it. Now, what are some key factors for an effective uh, product video? Like what are some things that you try to make sure are included or are demonstrated in each of your videos?
1: Yeah, for us, you know, the, the videos that we have show the use of the product. So you, you want to show the the core use of it in a very concise, um, visually, you know, stimulating and impactful way. So that means, you know, not too long, like keep it short, keep it sweet, um, hit really the highlights and, you know, with with sort of people's attention spans shrinking by the day, it's Mm -hmm. super important to make sure that you can get your, your point across very quickly. Um, and in addition, in, you know, with with subtitles and, and text overlay and things like that, it can help really hammer home the point of, of how to use a product.
0: Got it, yeah. I've, I've been hearing this statistic grow more and more, where a lot of people are just watching videos without sound, which I think is uh, very important for you to not just demonstrate that video in a way that doesn't require sound, but then also include things like you're mentioning, some kind of caption or, or, or text that people can follow along without having to hear necessarily. Uh, do you use the videos anywhere else other than on the site? Are you using them for for ads or distributed anywhere else outside of your website?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think what we try to do is create great content and then distribute it um, across a number of different channels. So those videos live on our website. They will be um, distributed to some of our retail partners. They'll be used on um, social media accounts. Um, and shared with uh, other influencers that would you know have requested and would like to use them. So we we definitely expand the reach from just a product page.
0: Yeah, I like that you get a lot of mileage out of this content. I think that's one of the benefits of investing heavily in quality content is that you're going to be able to use it in more places. Uh, you know, you can imagine that a retailer or even an influencer might not want to share your video if it's not high quality. Maybe you would, but maybe an influencer wouldn't if you didn't invest the time and money and resource into creating a, a piece of content that they want to put their name behind or alongside of. Uh, now. I'm imagining a product like the, the uh, products that you're selling are going to kill it during Black Friday and Cyber Monday, during that time of year. How do you guys prepare for for that that season?
2: I mean, it's it's important for us to to address it and make sure there's a sale going and that we've got great new content. Uh, but it's also important for us to note that we've got a, a really wide audience and wide range of customers. Including a lot of independent retailers that depend on us to uh, to be supporting them, so we kind of we, we we kind of sort of focus on them and our online uh, retail presence. We always make sure there's something new and interesting going on, and that we're paying attention to sort of the full circle of of our customers.
0: Got it. Now, when you have so many. Um... There's so many retail clients, and when it comes to Black Friday, do you have to, or is there another level of management there to make sure that everything's coordinated? If they do want to, uh, you know, discount one of your products, and you have to make sure you match on your site. Like, what's involved in when when you're in that situation?
2: Yeah, it's just a pretty high, like a highly involved dialogue with everybody. So everybody's on the same page because you want to make sure that your your products aren't found discounted. Deeply if, if you haven't okayed it or, or anything like that we're, we're fortunately still small enough that it's relatively easy to to handle, but um, it, it is something that we're super conscious of and we're always talking about
0: Got it and you mentioned email marketing is also one of the the key drivers for traffic and sales for you what's your What's your process for collecting emails and like how are you able to build up a large enough email list to 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 build a business and launch products too?
2: yeah over time um, our marketing department has been really adept at partnerships partnered posts giveaways but I mean we've been building our email list uh, for for years now and I, it's it's part of you know a, a bunch of different strategies but uh, some of the most effective ones have been partnered giveaways and and posts that we've uh, we've participated in with other like-minded brands over the past couple of years
0: how do how do the partnerships work how do they help help grow your email list?
2: Sure. It's a part of, I mean, an organic outreach with those other brands. They're reaching out to us and we all run sweeps campaigns, giveaways, things of that nature that kind of add to our list over time. I and mean, then it's natural too. People will uh, sign up to our list uh, on the website, via our blog, you know, things that are going on, things of that nature. So it's it's kind of, they come from all sorts of places.
0: Got it. So you partner with uh, a, a brand or a company that has similar audience as you, and they are running a sweepstakes or a giveaway, and they're promoting your product, promoting your brand, and basically you're reaching a whole new, uh, a whole new segment of of the marketplace that you might not have had before. Yeah, that's
2: exactly right.
0: Awesome. Uh, now to run this business, you mentioned, you know, 30 employees. How do you guys, uh, what kind of tools or applications, whether they be on Shopify or off of Shopify, do you rely on to, to help run the business?
1: Yeah, I think for, from a Shopify standpoint, um, you know, I think over the first couple of years, one of our biggest tools was, um, MailChimp and that in- integration with Shopify. Um, you know, we had a lot of uh, a lot of good luck with that. Um, you know, we've also uh, had good luck with some cross-selling apps, and I think that there's a variety of those um, out on the market that all do somewhat similar things, but it's so important when you have a collection of especially sort of disparate items um, that all appeal to a similar consumer to be cross-selling products. So on a product page, having you know, those suggested uh, products shown to a customer when they're looking at at one product um, has been super helpful for us. So both of those things are, are immensely helpful. Um, from more of like a business standpoint, I think we've had a lot of success with um, some of the enterprise uh, technology like Slack or Dropbox and things like that.
0: Very cool. Now, what, what's next for the business? Like, where do you guys want to see the brand grow over the next year?
2: Sure. I think we want to continue to build uh, you know, uh, our, our sort of catalog of really interesting products for skewing towards really interesting sort of giftable things like the carry-on kit as well as addressing entire categories like we have with Peak Iceworks. So innovation in, in two parts. Um, as far as newness in the company, we're expanding our, our titles, our books, um, and then as far as the business from a from a macro standpoint, I think we want to continue to build our social and email following, our retail customers that seem to be interested in what we're doing. We want to continue to foster the relationships with our independent stores and accounts. They're super important to us. They're where we got our start, and, and then I think to continue to do special and interesting collections with larger retailers. I mean, it, we're a company that's Grown one step at a time, and we I think we're going to keep on doing that. Um, and with each year, we've been able to do more, uh, more interesting things in food and beverage, and to create more of an impact uh, in the space. Um, so whether that's new and interesting consumable goods, or hard goods, or uh, books and content, it's it's all appear. You know, it's all. We've got some really authors lined up uh, for this fall. Uh, some really great books that we're coming out with. I think that early October, October 3rd or something is the the pub date for a lot of things um, that are coming out. And I think to continue to grow that catalog, to grow the um, the sort of bandwidth of our own team of of categories that we can approach is is really important to us.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Eric and Josh. So WNPDesign.com, W-A-N-D-P-D-E-S-I-G-N.com com is the website. Thank you so much again for coming on.
2: Yeah, hey, thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. We're huge uh, fans of Shopify. We're huge fans of the podcast. I know a, a lot of us at the company listen to it and enjoy it, and we really appreciate you having us on.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot.
0: Awesome, thanks, guys. Here's a sneak peek for what's in store in the next Shopify Masters episode. They're not just buying it because they like it. It's almost like a test. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial. Also, for this episode's show notes, head over to shopify.com blog.